Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Best of Jack London. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, White Fang, Part 3, Chapters 2 and 3. And now, Chapter 2, The Bondage. The days were thronged with experience for White Fang. During the time that Keish was tied by the stick, he ran about all over the camp, inquiring, investigating, learning. He quickly came to know much of the ways of the man-animals, but familiarity did not breed contempt. The more he came to know them, the more they vindicated their superiority. The more they displayed their mysterious powers, the greater loomed their god-likeness. To man has been given the grief, often, of seeing his gods overthrown and his altars crumbling. But to the wolf and the wild dog that have come in to crouch at man's feet, this grief has never come. Unlike man, whose gods are of unseen and the overguessed. Vapors and mists of fancy alluding to garmenture of reality, wandering wraiths of desired goodness and power, intangible outcroppings of self into the realm of spirit. Unlike man, the wolf and the wild dog that have come into the fire to find their gods in the living flesh, solid to the touch, occupying earth's space and requiring time for the accomplishment of their ends and their existence. No effort of faith is necessary to believe in such a god. No effort of will can possibly induce disbelief in such a god. There is no getting away from it. There it stands, on its two hind legs, club in hand, immensely potential, passionate, and wrathful and loving, god and mystery and power all wrapped up and around by the flesh that bleeds when it is torn, and that is good to eat like any flesh. And so it was with White Fang. The man-animals were gods, unmistakable and unescapable as his mother, Kish, had rendered her allegiance to them at the first cry of her name, so he was beginning to render his allegiance. He gave them the trail as a privilege indubitably theirs. When they walked, he got out of their way. When they called, he came. When they threatened, he cowered down. When they commanded him to go, he went away hurriedly. For behind any wish of theirs was power to enforce that wish, power that hurt, power that expressed itself in clouts, in clubs, in flying stones, and stinging lashes of whips. He belonged to them as all dogs belonged to them. His actions were theirs to command. His body was theirs to maul, to stamp upon, to tolerate. Such was the lesson that was quickly borne in upon him. It came hard, going as it did, counter to much that was strong and dominant in his own nature, and while he disliked it in the learning of it, Unknown to himself, he was learning to like it. It was a placing of his destiny in another's hands, a shifting of the responsibilities of existence. This in itself was compensation, for it is always easier to lean upon another than to stand alone. But it did not all happen in a day, this giving over of himself, body and soul, to the man-animals. He could not immediately forego his wild heritage and his memories of the wild. There were days when he crept to the edge of the forest and stood and listened to something calling him far and away, and always he returned, restless and uncomfortable, to whimper softly and wistfully at Keish's side and to lick her face with eager, questioning tongue. White Fang learned rapidly the ways of the camp. He knew the injustice and greediness of the older dogs when meat or fish was thrown out to be eaten. He came to know that men were more just, children more cruel, and women more kindly and more likely to toss him a bit of meat or bone. And after two or three painful adventures with the mothers of park-grown puppies, 
he came into the knowledge that it was always good policy to let such mothers alone, to keep away from them as far as possible, and to avoid them when he saw them coming. But the bane of his life was Lip-Lip. Larger, older, and stronger, Lip-Lip had selected White Fang for his special object of persecution. White Fang fought willingly enough, but he was outclassed. His enemy was too big. Lip-Lip became a nightmare to him. Whenever he ventured away from his mother, the bully was sure to appear, trailing at his heels, snarling at him, picking upon him, and watchful of his opportunity, when no man-animal was near, to spring upon him and force a fight. As Lip-Lip invariably won, he enjoyed it hugely. It became his chief delight in life, as it became White Fang's chief torment. But the effect upon White Fang was not to cow him. Although he suffered most of the damage and was always defeated, his spirit remained unsubdued. Yet a bad effect was produced. He became malignant and morose. His temper had been savage by birth, but it became more savage under this unending persecution. The genial, playful, puppyish side of him found little expression. He never played and gambled about with the other puppies of the camp. Lip-Lip would not permit it. The moment White Fang appeared near them, Lip-Lip was upon him, bullying and hectoring him, or fighting with him until he had driven him away. The effect of all this was to rob White Fang of much of his puppyhood, and to make him, in his comportment, older than his age. Denied the outlet through play of his energies, he recoiled upon himself and developed his mental processes. He became cunning. He had idle time in which to devote himself to thoughts of trickery. Prevented from obtaining his share of meat and fish when a general feed was given to the camp dogs, he became a clever thief. He had to forage for himself, and he foraged well, though he was oft-times a plague to the squaws in consequence. He learned to sneak about camp, to be crafty, to know what was going on everywhere, to see and to hear everything, and to reason accordingly, and successfully to devise ways and means of avoiding his implacable persecutor. It was early in the days of his persecution that he played his first really big crafty game and got there from his first taste of revenge. As Keish, when with the wolves, had lured out to destruction dogs from the camps of men, so White Fang, in manner somewhat similar, lured Lip-Lip into Keish's avenging jaws. Retreating before Lip-Lip, White Fang made an indirect flight that led in and out and around the various teepees of the camp. He was a good runner, "'swifter than any puppy of his size, and swifter than Lip-Lip. "'But he did not run his best in this chase. "'He barely held his own, one leap ahead of his pursuer. "'Lip-Lip, excited by the chase and by the persistent nearness of his victim, "'forgot caution and locality. "'And when he remembered locality, it was too late. "'Dashing at top speed around a teepee, "'he ran full tilt into Keish lying at the end of her stick. "'He gave one yelp of consternation, and then her punishing jaws closed upon him. She was tied, but he could not get away from her easily. She rolled him off his legs so that he could not run, while she repeatedly ripped and slashed him with her fangs. When at last he succeeded in rolling clear of her, he crawled to his feet, badly disheveled, hurt both in body and in spirit. His hair was standing out all over him in tufts where his teeth had mauled. He stood where he had arisen, opened his mouth, and broke out in a long, heartbroken puppy wail. But even this he was not allowed to complete. In the middle of it, White Fang, rushing in, sank his teeth into Lip-Lip's hind leg. 
"'There was no fight left in Lip-Lip, "'and he ran away shamelessly, "'his victim hot on his heels "'and worrying him all the way back to his own teepee. "'Here the squaws came to his aid, "'and White Fang, transformed into a raging demon, "'was finally driven off only by a fusillade of stones. "'Came the day when Grey Beaver, "'deciding that the liability of her running away was past, "'released Quiche. "'White Fang was delighted with his mother's freedom.' He accompanied her joyfully about the camp, and so long as he remained close by her side, Lip-Lip kept a respectful distance. White Fang even bristled up to him and walked stiff-legged, but Lip-Lip ignored the challenge. He was no fool himself, and whatever vengeance he desired to wreak, he could wait until he caught White Fang alone. Later on that day, Quiche and White Fang strayed into the edge of the woods next to the camp. He had led his mother there, step by step, and now when she stopped, he tried to inveigle her farther. The stream, the lair, and the quiet woods were calling to him, and he wanted her to come. He ran on a few steps, stopped, and looked back. She had not moved. He whined pleadingly and scurried playfully in and out of the underbrush. He ran back to her, licked her face, and ran on again. And still she did not move. He stopped and regarded her, all of an intentness and eagerness, physically expressed, that slowly faded out of him as she turned her head and gazed back at the camp. There was something calling to him out there in the open. His mother heard it too, but she heard also that other and louder call, the call of the fire and of man, the call which is given alone of all animals to the wolf to answer, to the wolf and the wild dog, who are brothers. Keish turned and slowly trotted back toward camp, Stronger than the physical restraint of the stick was the clutch of the camp upon her. Unseen and occultly, the gods still gripped with their power and would not let her go. White Fang sat down in the shadow of a birch and whimpered softly. There was a strong smell of pine, and the subtle wood fragrances filled the air, reminding him of his old life of freedom before the days of his bondage. But he was still only a part-grown puppy, and stronger than the call, either of man or of the wild, was the call of his mother. All the hours of his short life he had depended upon her. The time was yet to come for independence. So he arose and trotted forlornly back to camp, pausing once and twice to sit down and whimper and to listen to the call that still sounded in the depths of the forest. In the wild, the time of a mother with her young is short, but under the dominion of man it is sometimes even shorter. Thus it was with White Fang, Grey Beaver was in the dead of Three Eagles. Three Eagles was going away on a trip up the Mackenzie to the Great Slave Lake. A strip of scarlet cloth, a bearskin, twenty cartridges, and Quiche went to pay the debt. White Fang saw his mother taken aboard Three Eagles' canoe and tried to follow her. A blow from Three Eagles knocked him backward to the land. The canoe shoved off. He sprang into the water and swam after it, deaf to the sharp cries of Grey Beaver to return. Even a man-animal, a god, White Fang ignored. Such was the terror he was in losing of his mother. But gods are accustomed to being obeyed, and Grey Beaver wrathfully launched a canoe in pursuit. When he overtook White Fang, he reached down and by the nape of the neck lifted him clear of the water. He did not deposit him at once in the bottom of the canoe. Holding him suspended with one hand, with the other hand he proceeded to give him a beating, and it was a beating. His hand was heavy. Every blow was shrewd to hurt, and he delivered a multitude of blows. 
impelled by the blows that rained upon him, now from this side, now from that, White Fang swung back and forth like an erratic and jerky pendulum, varying with the emotions that surged through him. At first he had known surprise. Then came a momentary fear, when he yelped several times to the impact of the hand. But this was quickly followed by anger. His free nature asserted itself, and he showed his teeth and snarled fearlessly in the face of the wrathful god. This but served to make the god more wrathful. The blows came faster, heavier, more shrewd to hurt. Gray Beaver continued to beat. White Fang continued to snarl. But this could not last forever. One or the other must give over, and that one was White Fang. Fear surged through him again. For the first time he was being really manhandled. The occasional blows of sticks and stones he had previously experienced were as caresses compared with this. He broke down and began to cry and yelp. For a time each blow brought a yelp from him, but fear passed into terror until finally his yelps were voiced in unbroken succession, unconnected with the rhythm of the punishment. At last Grey Beaver withheld his hand. White Fang, hanging limply, continued to cry. This seemed to satisfy his master, who flung him down roughly in the bottom of the canoe. In the meantime, the canoe had drifted down the stream. Grey Beaver picked up the paddle. White Fang was in his way. He spurned him savagely with his foot. In that moment... White Fang's free nature flashed forth again, and he sank his teeth into the moccasin foot. The beating that had gone before was as nothing compared with the beating he now received. Gray Beaver's wrath was terrible. Likewise was White Fang's fright. Not only the hand, but the hard wooden paddle was used on him, and he was bruised and sore in all his small body when he was again flung down in the canoe. Again, and this time with purpose, did Gray Beaver kick him. White Fang did not repeat his attack on the foot. He had learned another lesson of his bondage. Never, no matter what the circumstance, must he dare to bite the god who was lord and master over him. The body of the lord and master was sacred, not to be defiled by the teeth of such as he. That was evidently the crime of crimes, the one offense there was no condoning nor overlooking. When the canoe touched the shore, White Fang lay whimpering and motionless, "'waiting the will of Grey Beaver. "'It was Grey Beaver's will that he should go ashore, "'for ashore he was flung, "'striking heavily on his side "'and hurting his bruises afresh. "'He crawled tremblingly to his feet "'and stood whimpering. "'Lip-Lip, who had watched the whole proceeding from the bank, "'now rushed upon him, "'knocking him over and sinking his teeth into him. "'White Fang was too helpless to defend himself, "'and it would have gone hard with him "'had not Grey Beaver's foot shot out "'lifting Lip-Lip into the air with its violence "'so that he smashed down to earth a dozen feet away. "'This was the man-animal's justice, "'and even then, in his own pitiable plight, "'White Fang experienced a little grateful thrill. "'At Grey Beaver's heels, "'he limped obediently through the village to the teepee. "'And so it came that White Fang learned "'that the right to punish was something "'that gods reserved for themselves "'and denied to the lesser creatures under them.' That night, when all was still, White Fang remembered his mother and sorrowed for her. He sorrowed too loudly and woke up Grey Beaver, who beat him. After that he mourned gently when the gods were around. But sometimes, straying off to the edge of the woods by himself, he gave vent to his grief and cried it out with loud whimperings and wailings. 
"'It was during this period that he might have hearkened to the memories of the lair and the stream "'and run back to the wild. "'But the memory of his mother held him. "'As the hunting man-animals went out and came back, "'so she would come back to the village some time. "'So he remained in his bondage waiting for her. "'But it was not altogether an unhappy bondage. "'There was much to interest him. "'Something was always happening. "'There was no end to the strange things these gods did.' "'and he was always curious to see. "'Besides, he was learning how to get along with Grey Beaver. "'Obedience, rigid, undeviating obedience, "'was what was exacted of him, "'and in return he escaped beatings "'and his existence was tolerated. "'Nay, Grey Beaver himself sometimes tossed him a piece of meat "'and defended him against the other dogs in the eating of it. "'And such a piece of meat was of value. "'It was worth more in some strange way "'than a dozen pieces of meat from the hand of a squaw. "'Grey Beaver never petted nor caressed. "'Perhaps it was the weight of his hand, "'perhaps his justice, perhaps the sheer power of him, "'and perhaps it was all these things that influenced White Fang, "'for a certain tie of attachment was forming "'between him and his surly lord. "'Insidiously, and by remote ways, "'as well as by the power of stick and stone and clout of hand, "'were the shackles of White Fang's bondage being riveted upon him. The qualities in his kind that in the beginning made it possible for them to come into the fires of men were qualities capable of development. They were developing in him, and the camp life, replete with misery as it was, was secretly endearing itself to him all the time. But White Fang was unaware of it. He knew only grief for the loss of Quiche, hope for her return, and a hungry yearning for the free life that had been his. We'll return with Chapter 3 right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 3, The Outcast. Lip-Lip continued so to darken his days that White Fang became wickeder and more ferocious than it was his natural right to be. Savageness was a part of his makeup, but the savageness thus developed exceeded his makeup. He acquired a reputation for wickedness amongst the man-animals themselves. Wherever there was trouble and uproar in camp, fighting and squabbling, or the outcry of a squaw over a bit of stolen meat, they were sure to find White Fang mixed up in it, and usually at the bottom of it. They did not bother to look after the causes of his conduct. They saw only the effects, and the effects were bad. He was a sneak and a thief, a mischief-maker, a fomenter of trouble, and irate squaws told him to his face. The while he eyed them alert and ready to dodge any quick-flung missile, "'that he was a wolf and worthless and bound to come to an evil end. "'He found himself an outcast in the midst of the populous camp. "'All the young dogs followed Lip-Lip's lead. "'There was a difference between White Fang and them. "'Perhaps they sensed his wild wood breed "'and instinctively felt for him the enmity "'that the domestic dog feels for the wolf. "'But be that as it may, "'they joined with Lip-Lip in the persecution, "'and once declared against him, they found good reason to continue declared against him. One and all, from time to time, they felt his teeth, and to his credit, he gave more than he received. Many of them he could whip in a single fight, but single fight was denied him. The beginning of such a fight was a signal for all the young dogs in camp to come running and pitch upon him. Out of this packed persecution, he learned two important things, how to take care of himself in a mass fight against him, and how, on a single dog, to inflict the greatest amount of damage in the briefest space of time. 
To keep one's feet in the midst of a hostile mass meant life, and this he learnt well. He became cat-like in his ability to stay on his feet. Even grown dogs might hurtle him backward or sideways with the impact of their heavy bodies, and backward or sideways he would go, in the air or sliding on the ground, but always with his legs under him and his feet downward to the Mother Earth. When dogs fight, there are usually preliminaries to the actual combat, snarlings and bristlings and stiff-legged struttings, but White Fang learned to omit these preliminaries. Delay meant the coming against him of all the young dogs. He must do his work quickly and get away, so he learned to give no warning of his intention. He rushed in and snapped and slashed on the instant, without notice, before his foe could prepare to meet him. Thus he learned how to inflict quick and severe damage. Also he learned the value of surprise. A dog taken off its guard, its shoulders slashed open or its ear ripped in ribbons before it knew what was happening, was the dog half whipped. Furthermore, it was remarkably easy to overthrow a dog taken by surprise, while a dog thus overthrown invariably exposed for a moment the soft underside of its neck, the vulnerable point at which to strike for its life. White Fang knew this point. It was a knowledge bequeathed to him directly from the hunting generations of wolves. So it was that White Fang's method when he took the offensive was, first to find a young dog alone, second to surprise it and knock it off its feet, and third to drive it with his teeth at the soft throat. Being but partly grown, his jaws had not yet become large enough nor strong enough to make his throat attack deadly. But many a young dog went around camp with a lacerated throat in token of White Fang's intention. And one day, catching one of his enemies alone on the edge of the woods, he managed, by repeatedly overthrowing him and attacking the throat, to cut the great vein and let out the life. There was a great row that night. He had been observed. The news had been carried to the dead dog's master. The squaws remembered all the instances of stolen meat, and Grey Beaver was beset by many angry voices. But he resolutely held the door of his teepee, inside which he had placed the culprit, and refused to permit the vengeance for which his tribespeople clamored. White Fang became hated by man and dog. During this period of his development, he never knew a moment's security. The tooth of every dog was against him, the hand of every man. He was greeted with snarls by his kind, with curses and stones by his gods. He lived tensely. He was always keyed up, alert for attack, wary of being attacked, with an eye for sudden and unexpected missiles, prepared to act precipitately and coolly, to leap in with a flash of teeth, or to leap away with a menacing snarl. As for snarling, he could snarl more terribly than any dog, young or old, in camp. The intent of the snarl is to warn or frighten, and judgment is required to know when it should be used. White Fang knew how to make it and when to make it. Into his snarl he incorporated all that was vicious, malignant, and horrible. With nose serulated by continuous spasms, hair bristling in recurrent waves, tongue whipping out like a red snake and whipping back again, ears flattened down, eyes gleaming hatred, lips wrinkled back, and fangs exposed and dripping, he could compel a pause on the part of almost any assailant. A temporary pause, when taken off his guard, gave him the vital moment in which to think and determine his action. But often a pause so gained lengthened out until it evolved into a complete cessation from the attack. And before more than one of the grown dogs, White Fang's snarl enabled him to beat an honorable retreat. An outcast himself from the pack of the park-grown dogs, 
his sanguinary methods and remarkable efficiency made the pack pay for its persecution of him. Not permitted himself to run with the pack, the curious state of affairs obtained that no member of the pack could run outside the pack. White Fang would not permit it. What of his bushwhacking and waylaying tactics, the young dogs were afraid to run by themselves. With the exception of Lip-Lip, they were compelled to hunch together for mutual protection against the terrible enemy they had made. A puppy alone by the riverbank met a puppy dead, or a puppy that aroused the camp with its shrill pain and terror as it fled back from the wolf-cub that had waylaid it. But White Fang's reprisals did not cease, even when the young dogs had learned thoroughly that they must stay together. He attacked them when he caught them alone, and they attacked him when they were bunched. The sight of him was sufficient to start them rushing after him, at which times his swiftness usually carried him into safety. But woe the dog that outran his fellows in such pursuit! White Fang had learned to turn suddenly upon the pursuer that was ahead of the pack, and thoroughly to rip him up before the pack could arrive. This occurred with great frequency, for once in full cry, the dogs were prone to forget themselves in the excitement of the chase, while White Fang never forgot himself. Stealing backward glances as he ran, he was always ready to whirl around and down the overzealous pursuer that outran his fellows. Young dogs are bound to play, and out of the exigencies of the situation they realized their play in this mimic warfare. Thus it was that the hunt of White Fang became their chief game, a deadly game, withal, and at all times a serious game. He, on the other hand, being the fastest-footed, was unafraid to venture anywhere. During the period that he waited vainly for his mother to come back, he led the pack many a wild chase through the adjacent woods, but the pack invariably lost him. Its noise and outcry warned him of its presence, while he ran alone, velvet-footed, silently, a moving shadow among the trees after the manner of his father and mother before him. Further, he was more directly connected with the wild than they, and he knew more of its secrets and stratagems. A favorite trick of his was to lose his trail in running water and then lie quietly in a nearby thicket while their baffled cries arose around him. Hated by his kind and by mankind, indomitable, perpetually warred upon, and himself waging perpetual war, his development was rapid and one-sided. There was no soil for kindliness and affection to blossom in. Of such things he had not the faintest glimmering. The code he learned was to obey the strong and to oppress the weak. Grey Beaver was a god and strong, therefore White Fang obeyed him. But the dog younger or smaller than himself was weak, a thing to be destroyed. His development was in the direction of power. In order to face the constant danger of hurt and even of destruction, his predatory and protective faculties were unduly developed. He became quicker of movement than the other dogs, swifter of foot, craftier, deadlier, more lithe, more lean with iron-like muscle and sinew, more enduring, more cruel, more ferocious, and more intelligent. He had to become all these things, else he would not have held his own nor survived the hostile environment in which he found himself. We'll return next week Sunday with more of Jack London's White Fang. If you're enjoying our story, please do take a moment and send us a kind review. For 1001 Best of Jack London, this is your host, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.